Colossians 1. Verse 1, there it is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, introductions should have author, date, location, and occasion. So I think the author of Colossians was probably Paul. Believe it or not, there are people that would disagree. Um, and they will cite things like he uses words in this epistle that he doesn't use anywhere else in his writing. Um, well, he's dealing with stuff in this epistle that he doesn't deal with anywhere else in his writing, so that kind of makes sense. The date, uh, if we just use contextual clues, puts the writing between 63 and 66 uh, AD. And then the location, Kate, I put a slideshow in. So if you just go to, all right, look at that. It's the world. Well, except I've cut off the United States and a lot of Russia, but that's doesn't matter because we're looking, yeah, it's just, it's just California and Texas. Uh, if you look at Turkey there, uh, that's, that's where this place is. Go ahead and go to the next one. So now we've zoomed in so you can see Cairo to the south, Istanbul to the north. And, and so right kind of in the center of the western side of Turkey, um, there's a mountain named Mount Cadmus. Um, and so go ahead. Oh, unnecessary. We've established where we're at. Keep going. Thank you. All right. So you see the white peaks in the top there. That's Mount Cadmus. And, and so we're looking uh, uh, east towards it. At the base kind of of Mount Cadmus was a uh, river called Lycus that flowed, L-Y-C-U-S, that flowed uh, west from the mountain toward Laodicea. In today's um, geography, it's a little more than a creek. But along the banks, go ahead and go to the next image, there was a once prosperous town uh, enjoying a thriving wool industry strategically located on that. Like, it was the main overland trade route between Ephesus to the west and the Euphrates, which would have been 400 miles to the east. By the time Paul writes this letter, though, Colossae had declined under the shadow of the prosperity of, oh, go back, Hierapolis. That was good anticipation, though. Hierapolis, and then if you look, Laodicea is kind of named over here, but there's a circle or a triangle of circles there. These cities, um, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, we're, we're pretty close together, and at the point where this epistle gets written, Colossae was pretty insignificant. In fact, it would not be wrong to say that this was the least significant town or city to which any of Paul's epistles were addressed. Um, and then the last image, I think, yeah. All right, so the mound that you see, kind of center right of this picture, is all that remains of Colossae. It hasn't been excavated, so, but that's where it was. And so that's just the dirt and everything that grew up over the top of this town as you know, time marched inexorably on. Uh, we're done with the slideshow. Uh, the occasion would have been 10 years before Paul writes this letter, so 52, 53, 
54 AD, Paul makes a trip, and, and we, we've read about it in the book of Acts, through a town called Ephesus, which is a coastal town on the um, western coast of what's now Turkey. And while he was in Ephesus preaching the gospel and setting up churches, there was a man there, and his name was Epaphras. He heard the gospel from Paul during the preaching ministry at Ephesus. Epaphras becomes a Christian and goes back to his hometown of Colossae with a mandate to proclaim the gospel and plant a church. So the church in Colossae is established, and it grows to the point where Epaphras is actually able to travel in order to minister with and to Paul. By the end of this letter, we'll find out that Epaphras is with Paul at the time of its writing, um, where Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Of some note as well, if you're curious about stuff like this, which I am, Philemon was probably put in the same envelope as the letter to Colossians because Philemon was in the church at Colossae. So the whole uh, hubbub surrounding Onesiphorus or whatever, anyway, pretend I went to seminary, uh, that whole hullabaloo was happening at the church to which this letter is addressed. Um, there are other controversies too, but I don't tend to address those today because many of you have already gone back to sleep. Um, it should be obvious to you though already why I've chosen this epistle for our little baby church here in Springfield. Um, a baby church in a little town threatened by all the trappings of modernity can probably profit from the reminders we'll find in a letter written to a baby church in a little town threatened by all of the advancements of modernity 2,000 years ago, right? And it's why I chose this graphic. I don't like ever talk about this, but I want you all to know I spend way too much time choosing and designing the sermon series graphics way too much time because I want it to convey something to those who are kind of have a, an artistic mind. So what you've got here is two little saplings growing up together, right? One is very intimidating looking and spiny and the other one is very innocent looking and kind of pure. But between them, if you look closely, you'll see that there's already uh, silk webbing that uh, 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 probably an arachnid has drawn between them. And I just thought, man, that perfectly encapsulates Springfield Baptist Church one year into uh, us, us establishing our membership and constituting. We're already, we're springing up and there are, there are threats to our body from without. Not so much yet from within, but from, from outside. There are things that, that, and groups of people that would, I think, if they could, do us harm. Um, they're, they're probably not that predominantly in Springfield geographically yet, but they're close. And they're knocking on the door. And this isn't me trying to spook you. This is just me saying, I plan to mine the depths of this letter and, and pray that as we make our way through this epistle, we will continue to draw to Jesus, develop in community, and then deploy to the culture around us in hopes of displaying the glory of God. 
Amen. That's kind of, I think that's our, like, we're going to get into sloganeering. That's us. So Colossians 1, 1, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he starts almost every epistle this way, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Interesting fact, Paul, at least nowhere in recorded biblical history, nowhere does he visit this church. So he only knows of them through Epaphras and probably other saints, obviously. Um, Because of the hope... I'm sorry, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it, there he is, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Um, to begin with, as always, and you're like, like some of you are going, that's not fair. You already began. You don't get to, yes, I do. Uh, now the, the sermon, the intro is over. This is the sermon. So to begin with, Paul makes it a point to let us know that he is writing to the saints. And I want to make sure that, that you understand, as always, the primary target in my mind and in my heart during the preaching portion of our worship service, the primary target is the church. As Paul opens the letter, he makes it known that he's addressing the saints, and I need to make the same thing known. I am mainly addressing the saints. Um, That doesn't mean that there there are not evangelical elements to a good Sunday morning sermon, but that's not the primary reason we're gathered here. That's a risky thing to say to somebody who's historically Southern Baptist, but I I felt like it needed to be said. Um, If you're among our company this morning and you do not think you're a Christian, like you think, eh, I can take it or leave it. I'm mostly here for some other reason. Um, That's not to say that nothing that I'm going to bring up will be of any benefit to you. It just means that it's important you understand the difference between you and those of us who are vitally joined to Christ. And that difference will become evident as this message progresses. Um, For those of you who are a little tired, uh, bad news. I don't have an anecdote this morning. I don't have any clever illustrations. I don't even have a story from history to illustrate the points that I'm going to make from this passage. Sorry. What I do have are five points, and you can write them down now if you want to. First, God wants you to have grace and peace. That's first. Second, You cannot have grace and peace from God without faith in Jesus Christ. Third, and this might seem disconnected, but third is hope is the fountainhead of brotherly love. Hope is the fountainhead of brotherly love. Fourth, that hope is only found in the gospel. 
And then fifth and finally, we're just going to behold the gospel. So point one, God wants you to have grace and peace. Verse two says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So uh, that's not all that God desires from you or for you, I should say. That's not all that God desires for you, but don't miss that he does desire this. Um, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands or interact with me, just, I'm just asking a rhetorical question to engage your imagination. Okay? How many of you come to church on Sunday and uh, you come like hoping to hear something that maybe encourages your heart, um, discouraged by everything that you've experienced in the week prior and frustrated is like your baseline in, in the midst of your life, wherever you are right now. Like how many of you come in here hauling <coughs> baggage behind you from the week that you've just had? Um, and then you hear me say, God wants you to have grace and peace. And you're like, okay, if, if you're not completely cynical, there's a part of you that's like, oh, that's, that's good to be reminded of that. I'm happy to hear that God wants me to have grace and peace. But then you immediately, because you're analytical, go, hmm, let me look at my life. It doesn't look like God wants me to have grace and peace. Right? And that's fair. So that's why I say it's not all that God wants you to have. It's not the only thing God wants you to have, but he does want you to have grace and peace. If you are a Christian and grace and peace are like kind of absent from your life, it's not because God wants you to have judgment and warfare. If you're a Christian and grace and peace are absent from your life, it's not because God wants you to have his judgment and warfare. Okay? When Paul says this, though, it's not just flowery language that he's using to kind of fill up the page um, because he's writing to people that he's never met and he wants to say nice things. You tracking with me? The Holy Spirit inspires every word. God wants his people to have grace and peace. We're just going to have to take his word for it because I don't have time to get into all the reasons you don't have grace and peace by listing all the hypothetical situations that might cause you to be on a path of some, maybe some discipline, maybe some purification that flows from difficulty. Okay? I'm just telling you, God wants you to have grace and peace. More on that later. Point two, you can't have grace and peace without faith in Christ. Verses three, four, and five. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard, sorry, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you don't have hope laid up for you in heaven. Period. If you don't have faith, you don't have hope. And you'll note how one reality flows from the other in Paul's thinking. And you're going to argue with me here. If you don't believe in Jesus, you'll argue and you'll be like, yeah, I do have hope. How, who are you to say that I don't? Stay with me. And maybe by the end here, you'll have a better hope, a lasting hope, and an eternal hope. I'm not saying you, you completely are hopeless and lack all sense of wishful thinking. I'm not saying you're not capable of that. You are. But this is different. This is hope laid up in heaven. You don't have that if you're outside of Jesus Christ. Point three. 
oh, we're going to be done, like real quick, right? Hope is the fountainhead of love for the brethren. So if you look at verses 4 and 5, he says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So here's my thinking. The church in Colossae loves because they know they have hope laid up for them in heaven. So there's an instructive piece here, right? If, you, if you'll just listen carefully. When, when love, look, in fact, look at me so I know you're listening. When love for the brethren starts to wane, and you know when this is happening in your own heart, you're like, like if you just had to say, on a scale of one to 10, how much are you feeling lovey towards people at church and you're like eh, I was at a seven last week now I'm at like a four because James said something when I got up to go to the bathroom and I feel attacked and I don't like when that love for the people in church starts to go down starts to wane part of the reason is always always that you've taken your eyes off the one who promises eternal life so-and-so at church is annoying. I can't stand them. Like what's going on there is you have taken your focus off the one who gave you the promise of eternal life, which is your hope laid up for you in heaven. Let me say that another way. Uh, a preoccupation with the things of this world will make us care less and less for genuine fellowship with the people of God. It's always an indication that our love for God is foundering. Foundering is what you call it when a ship is taking on water. F-O-U-N-D-E-R-I-N-G. Okay. Foundering. Um, I don't really care about these people in your head. Like, I don't really care about these people is always an indication or evidence that your affections have moved away from Jesus. Let me say it one more way. Because I feel like some of you are... Like you either didn't listen the first few times or you disagree with me. So maybe if I say it a third way, you'll at least it'll get stuck in your head and you'll have to think about it all week. OK, when our affections are invested in the wrong things because we are finite, which means we have a limited capacity for giving our attention and our affection and our our uh, emotional energy. We have a limited capacity for giving those things away. When our affections are invested in the wrong things, we will become increasingly disinterested in loving the people in this room or wherever you normally find fellowship. We have a limited supply of heartfelt affection to invest. So in Revelation 2, 2, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus and he says this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance and how you can't bear with those who are evil. Now those are good things. Toil, patient endurance, good works, don't like evil, that's all good. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So these are people who can suss out when somebody's preaching a gospel that doesn't have biblical uh, uh, teeth, right? They can suss out when somebody's like writing a book called Your Best Life Now or fill in the blank. Um, I know... You are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary. Well, that's pretty awesome too, right? A church that bears 
difficulty patiently for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and doesn't grow weary holding the line and demonstrating fealty to Jesus like that. There's nothing wrong with that. We would want that as a church. But this I have against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. This is what Jesus wants the church at Ephesus to know. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it, it, the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 had the right doctrine. They hated evil in the culture around them, but they had cooled in their love for Jesus. Do you see now, and I'm sure a lot of you already knew this, but some of you are learning for the first time. It is possible to have a lot of religious behavior intact and right in your life and be missing the thing in which God is most interested, which is your affections, your love for Jesus Christ. What do you suppose they were loving instead? I'm just going to throw out some examples. These are completely at random. I did not sit and like really try to think of something that would trigger you. What were they loving instead? Doctrine? Like I've met people who are really good at doctrine and I'm pretty sure they don't love Jesus. Um, were, they, were they loving Fox News? Conspiracy theories? Being right about COVID, right? Exercise science, homeschooling, model plans. Like I, pick your thing. It could be like all of these are fine things to be interested in. I, I have no problem. If you want to watch Fox News, just please be aware. Just like MSNBC, just like CNN, just like all the news quote unquote channels. It's all propaganda, folks. It's, it's not news. It's just you're being fed something. You want to watch it, knock yourself out. Uh, you want to be right about COVID? Me too. I agree. But if we disagree about who's right about COVID, that's all right too. Uh, just know that it's actually me. Exercise science is great. Uh, homeschooling is fine in its place, right? And so is, so is sending your kids into the lion's den of public school, if you know. It's not morally wrong. It might be dangerous. We'll talk after. Those are fine things to be interested in, right? The problem is that sometimes those things become ultimate things. So like if I say, hey, homeschooling's better. There's a part of you that's like, what the? What? I think you need to mind your business, Pastor. My kids are all in public school, so this is hypothetical, right? But you kind of, like, if I come at your thing, whatever it is, and criticize your approach, you might be, like, you might discover that that thing is a little too high in your own affections. Because do you react the same way when somebody comes at Jesus? insinuates there is no God. Like, take it to the bank. The church at Ephesus had good doctrine, but they didn't care about one another because their love for Jesus had become less than their love for something else. So Paul notes the deep affection the Colossians have for one another, and I want to note the same thing here. One thing I feel like we're kind of like doing right at Springfield Baptist Church. If I just had to pick one, I would pick this one. We love each other around here. But I also think it's important we understand that it's be, like that love that we have for one another has to flow down from the fountainhead, which is the hope that we have of eternal life, which comes from a belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners, which is the gospel, right? So he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you 
in heaven. We'll love one another to whatever degree we appreciate the hope laid up for us in heaven. And waning affection for our brothers and sisters is always some, some, something like a signal fire, a warning to your own heart. When you can't love somebody here, like there might be something else wrong. Because, point four, the hope, that hope, is only found in the gospel. So verses four through eight, he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, where? Where'd they hear this before? In the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing. He's saying the gospel, <coughs> excuse me, in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Listen to me, please. The gospel is not something that happened, that you heard, that you believed one year at summer camp, and now you're just kind of clinging uh, tacitly to some experience that you had 30 years ago. The gospel is, if it's legitimate, it is increasing. It is bearing fruit in your life today. And you can see, and now it's not everybody didn't have the same fruit, but it's some 60, some 30, some 100 fold. But the gospel will be creating fruit in your life. What is that? What is like primarily in the Christian's life? That's repentance and faith. It's cyclical. Like I'm always repenting and believing, right? Repenting and believing today. Like you can't breathe enough today that you're all set on oxygen tomorrow. So repentance and faith today, that's for today. You're going to need to do it again tomorrow. The gospel's increasing in your life just as you learned it. Uh, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So the hope laid up for us in heaven is heard by us in the word of truth. The gospel, which means if we're going to guard, listen, so I'm, what I'm doing now is we are cascading down the points to reach the pool at the bottom, all right? If we're going to guard our affections and keep alive the hope in our hearts and keep bearing fruit at Springfield Baptist Church, we need to refresh our gospel fluency. That's what that means. We need to go for a swim in the gospel. So if you go, if you hit the rewind button and go back to September, October of 20, was it 2021? Holy smokes. All right. So it's been a minute. We went through the, what I called the series on the economy of mercy. And I said, I want us to have gospel fluency as a church. When somebody says, what's the gospel? I want us to know the answer, not intellectually but like know it from the experience that we've had in it. Okay, so my fifth and final point, what is the gospel? And if there's not a moment of panic in you, then I am nailing it pastorally in my preaching ministry. Most of us, I think, right when we hear that, especially if we're out in the wide, when you hear it at church, it's kind of safe. You're like, oh, the gospel is this and that. But when you're at work and somebody's like, what is the gospel anyway? I'm guessing a lot of us would have a preventricular contraction and, you know, like a head rush and be like, oof, I'm not ready to answer this question. I want us to be ready. The gospel is 
Good news. It's literally what it means. Yeah. Praise Jesus. The gospel is good news. What does good news do? And now you're like, oh, wait a minute. I remember this. This guy only has three sermons, and this is, his, this is one, right? The gospel is good news. What does good news do? Good news invades dark spaces. It pushes back darkness by shining light. So good news is like, it's not cancer. It's just an infection. We're going to give you some antibiotics. That's good news. However long you weren't sure if it was cancer or not, now you know it's not. Good news. Good news is the marriage isn't over. He came to his senses. That's good news, right? Or maybe it's he got hit by a truck. I don't know. Good news. Good news is it's not the foundation of your house that le that's leaking. It, there was a pipe back there in the wall that was leaking. That, trust me, might still be a thousand bucks, but that's way better than the foundation. It's good news. Good news is your parents did not leave you at the store on the military base overseas. You just weren't paying attention when they walked to the next aisle. So as you were sprinting out to the car, convinced that they were gone and couldn't find it, and then sprinting back into the store, sobbing as you went up to one of the cashiers to have them just, you know, on one last hope that mom and dad still love you, page the store and find out where they were. Good news is they didn't leave. They're still there. That's good news, Right? That really happened. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news, in the context of the gospel, the bad news is sin and the fall. So you got Adam and Eve, representative of all of humanity. They were given how many commandments? One, right? And the, the one commandment that they were given, they were given in the context of having a nature that was actually capable of keeping the commandment. And they didn't do it. So they took and they ate from the tree from which God said, the day you eat of it, dying you will die. They took and they ate of that tree and they plunged themselves and all of creation into a curse and everything is broken as a result. The curse pronounced in Genesis 3 is that humanity will now toil against creation. Nothing is going to work quite the way it's supposed to. It doesn't mean nothing works at all. It just means that things don't work the way they're supposed, the way they were originally designed to. Right? So to combat weeds, we invent Roundup. Because we're like, well, I've got the answer for the fall. Uh, turns out glyphosate seems to possibly, I don't want to get sued or whatever, but it seems like it possibly causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right? So from 1974 to 2014, we were killing the weeds, and it turns out ourselves with Roundup. Possibly. Unless you do a clinical trial where you give some humans Roundup and not others and see who ends up with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's difficult to prove that that's the cause. But indications are that it's the cause. Well, the point is everything is broken. We've got antibiotics. Great. Now there's super bacteria, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Please stop using antibiotic soap because it's making super bacteria. You, once you get somebody in your family get MRSA in the hospital, you'll understand there's no cure for the fall. Nothing works quite like it's supposed to, including us, right? 
Third, everybody knows everything's broken. How do we know? How do we know everything's broken? Well, in my opinion, uh, it's important that every time I go through this, I use a different example. So this time I'm going to use this example. We know everything's broken because daytime television exists. Judge Joe Brown, Judge Judy, Dr. Phil. Back in the day, it was Jerry Springer. If you think the horror show of these trashy people suing each other for $5 is, is like... It, just poor people. I've done pastoral counseling. Believe me when I tell you, rich people are just as trashy as poor people, if not more so. Everybody knows everything is broken. Plus your own heart tells you, amen? Much of our time is spent feeling perplexed, if not frustrated, frustrated, if not angry, angry, if not losing our tempers, and losing our tempers, if not losing our minds. We know, we feel that everything is broken, and then look how we try to fix it. Four ways we try to fix what's broken. The first bandage that we put on what's broken or the first well that we go to to try to satisfy what's missing I think is the well of self and it works like this I can be better I can be more than this version of me that I don't like now if you're one of these psychopaths you're just totally in love with yourself and haven't found anything wrong this probably isn't your well but for most people, we're like, I, I want to improve because a future version of me will satisfy. So we eat more blueberries and we drink more water and we walk 70 miles a day and we start trying to get out of debt because if I'm rich, I'll be happy. We start trying to get stronger because if I'm ripped, my wife will, you know, like she'll be into it. We start trying to get promoted because if I'm in management, people will respect me. Um, and, and then thinner, richer, stronger, promoted you now has gray hair, baggy skin, no time to spend your money because when you aren't at the gym, you're at work and you don't have any real friends. You can't fix yourself. And even if you do improve a few things, a better version of you is not going to satisfy your soul. And the older you get, the more you realize that's true. So then we try the well of others. If I can just get people to approve of me, I can shut up this nagging voice in my head that constantly criticizes everything that I think, everything that I feel, and everything that I do. So let me dress a certain way. Let me talk a certain way. Let me get more likes on social media. Let me get more people to notice me at school or at work. And it doesn't work. So you start flattering people around you, hoping that they'll at least just return the favor, right? Even if you don't mean it, just tell me I'm awesome. And that doesn't work, so then you become a victim, right? constantly projecting out to everybody uh, how hard you've got it so everyone will feel sorry for you when they realize how tough your life is. It doesn't work. Now you blew all your money on clothes. Someone uh, 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 it talks when your mouth is open and your vocal cords are moving, but it's not you because you don't sound like you anymore. You filled the internet with these really sad pick-me bat signals that you thought were subtle, but they weren't. And people at school and work think you're fake and complain too much. Or, worse yet, it does work. Even where it does work. You get the clothes, you get the new accent, and 
start carrying yourself a certain way and saying you believe certain things and people do start to love you. People are like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. But five minutes into that, you realize, oh, wait a minute. It didn't work because they don't actually love me. They just love this version of me that I've projected out there for everyone to see. You can't find satisfaction in getting approval from other people. So you go to the well of the world. I mean, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Let me take some mushrooms and meet the aliens that brought us to this planet. Let me take some Xanax and shut off the anxiety that I have so I can sleep for a little while. Let me get drunk until I forget my birthday. Let me go from one bed to another hoping some man will save me from my misery. Or let me visit sites on the internet like some kind of a weirdo kicking down doors in a hotel room seeing whatever's going on in somebody else's relationship. Let me get fame and fortune so that I can, I can do whatever I want. And none of that works either. And the reason is because if you talk to somebody who does psychedelics long enough you'll realize that on the third or the fourth visit those entities that they're meeting start getting pretty nasty they're not so loving after all Xanax kicks the can down the road hey heads up the anxiety will be waiting for you after you get done feeling better in your drug adult state I'm not saying don't get medication if you need it I'm saying it doesn't fix anything are we we understand the difference okay I didn't just attack you for taking psych meds Drinking to excess uh, destroys everyone who does it. Alcohol is a 100% win rate over good decision making. 100%. Sexual immorality does not make anyone love you. Period. And if you want to know what fame and fortune does, chat with a celebrity sometime. They're miserable, and they're usually doing all the previous things on the list as well. So we go to the well of religion. This is maybe the devil's favorite one. I don't know. Here's how it works. If I can be moral, if I can just be a good person, like if I can just manage to do one more good thing than I did bad things, then God will have to accept me because on the scales overall, I'm righteous. So we make these rules up, like lists of moral things as best we can figure, and we try so hard to keep them. Listen, when you, this is just a, a complete side note, but I can't resist the urge because I thought about it while I was prepping my notes, and I'm like, this doesn't belong in this sermon, but then I just thought about it again, so maybe it does, all right? Human beings inventing their own morality is not, it's proof that we need a morality, Right? So we've, we've swept off the table everything that God has said. The basic fundamental commandments of how human beings should treat one another. That's pie in the sky. That's puritanical religion. Get it out of here, right? So now the new morality, bet me, bet me. The new, well, I shouldn't say that. Gambling is, I assure you that I'm correct. Uh, the new morality is this whole diversity, equity, and inclusion push. The new morality is, I mean, you know how that started? So like late 1990s, you've got some Marxists, some communists in San Francisco who are like, I know what we can do to make some money. Let's go into some businesses and tell them they have implicit bias and that because of the color of their skin, they tend to oppress people more and we'll teach them how to stop. Fast forward to today and here's what you've got. And if you don't admit you have implicit bias, what are you? 
you're immoral. Do you see? It's just the new morality. You have to accept that trans women are women, which I'm honestly not even sure, like, is that, even, is that it? Or is it trans men are women? I don't know. But you have to accept it, whatever it is. That's the new morality. See, we always have a moral system. We've just swept God's law out. And so now we're ushering in our own. Anyway, point being, <clears throat> you try so hard to keep these moral rules that you come up with and we fail so hard at keeping them. And, and then so you discover the well of self-improvement or self, the well of the approval of others, um, the well of the world, just everything the world has to offer and the well of religion don't really satisfy. None of them really give you life because what you need is living water and what comes from these wells, it's like seawater. It gives you kind of the feeling that you're quenching your thirst, but what it actually does is it leaves you sick and even more dehydrated and even closer to death. That's what our fixes for everything that's broken by sin accomplish. That's the bad news. Sin broke everything. You're a sinner. None of humanity's fixes actually fix anything. So how does the gospel push back? How does the gospel shine light in this dark space? The gospel relieves you of the notion that a better version of you will fix what's broken by freeing you to admit that you cannot fix yourself. That's how the gospel does it. God is crystal clear about this. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Well, that's everybody, every human. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. <clears throat> Can you fix yourself? You can't do good. Can you fix yourself? You're worthless. Can you fix yourself? With what worth are you going to fix yourself? This is affecting my self-esteem. Second, the gospel dispels the myth that having the approval of other people will fix what is broken by declaring that all people everywhere must repent. All right, so you're on the Titanic, it's going down, but the captain sure likes you. What difference does it make? Everybody needs to get into a lifeboat. How much the captain likes you, well, I suppose that's where the illustration falls apart, right? Maybe he gets you into a lifeboat. Anyway, not the point. How can it be, if everybody's in the same boat as you, that it matters what they think of you. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Other people's approval doesn't matter. So then the gospel goes on and rightly paints in stark contrast the ridiculousness of the notion that anything in the world could fix what's broken because it points out that all the things in the world are broken too. So the wise man in Ecclesiastes says it this way, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Praise God, the Bible is honest, right? I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, all is striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. 
surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. What in the world, in the wide, broken world, are you going to find to fix what's broken in the world? It's all broken. You can't use broken stuff to fix broken stuff. Finally, the gospel removes the possibility of putting God in your debt by correctly describing God as perpetually holy. He is in nobody's debt. He is the one who made us, so stop trying to impress him. Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by work of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Well, that doesn't sound like good news. God's like, listen to me, you foolish person, you sinner, you hopelessly lost human. Nothing is going to fix your situation. Period. Okay. That sounds more hopeless. Fair enough. Look back at Colossians 1, verse 15. All right, we're almost done, right? You're like, we've been on point five for half an hour. Colossians 1, 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Who is? Jesus Christ. Yeah, for by him All things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is different. He is not like you, and he is not like me. By him Everything that was made was made. Everything. He was a man, but he wasn't just a man. He was a just man. Being 100% God incarnate. For in him, 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You. You. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Oh, that's good news. That pushes back the darkness. That deals with the problem. Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, some miracle I can't possibly comprehend or understand. He really lived, really never sinned, really satisfied the commandments of God, really suffered the wrath of God, and really invites you into fellowship with God through himself. That's good news. He tells the woman at the well in John 4, who it now occurs to me, was something of a religious expert. If 
you go read the story. She's at the well of religion. And he tells her, you know, what? She, she was at the well in the heat of the day, commentators suspect, because she was ashamed to be seen by the other women who went to draw water in the cool of the morning, which like, doesn't that have a little bit of an approval from others piece to it? And then it occurs to me, she, she had five husbands because she didn't understand she was the one with the issue. So she kept trying to find satisfaction in something outside of herself. And she had tried everything she could think of to change herself well, well of others, well of self. And what he says to her is, if you knew who it was that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me for a drink and I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. And she finishes talking to Jesus and she turns around and she runs into town and she tells the people there, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done and still wants to see me and still wants to talk to me and still wants to know me. That's good news. Yeah, living water. Her life changed that day. And I'm telling you the same thing. Come home from being hostile in mind, right? You're like, I'm talking to you. You're like, I'm a Christian. I know. So am I. Guess what I need to do today? Come home from being hostile in mind. I need to come home from being engaged in evil deeds and be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus' atonement. Come be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. Because he gives you his righteousness as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't counterfeit it. You can only receive it freely as a gift from him. And he will give it to you if, if you ask him to. Now that, come on, doesn't that push back the darkness a little bit? Change your affections so you can really love somebody else too, huh? Come to church like, oh, geez, why am I even here? These people are a bunch of knuckleheads. But when you get reminded of what you are and what he is and what he's done to bring you from where you were to where you are and what he's promised about where you're going, all of a sudden you look around and you go, oh, I'm a knucklehead too, so I fit right in here. Yeah. Hope drives love for each other and we have grace and peace from God in the midst of this fellowship. Let's not take our eyes off the prize. Amen.